When I hit rock bottom, it was completely exacerbated by the fact that I didn't actually know how to lean on people. I didn't know how to ask for support. I didn't know how to lean on my friends. And I didn't know how to kind of stay in those cultivated relationships that I had put on the back burner for a little bit. And that was just a horrible place to be. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Isa Watson. Isa is the founder and CEO of Squad, an app focused on helping close friends connect away from social media. She's also the author of the book Life Beyond Likes, which published earlier this year, and one of the highest fundraising Black women in this country. But before becoming a social scientist, Isa was actually a real scientist working for Pfizer. She was also a VP at J.P. Morgan. Hmm. I feel like there's a story there, and we're going to get into all of those pivots and how she made them. Isa, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thanks for having me, Carly and Danielle. We're excited to get into this. So we like to start off every conversation with a quick lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Well, normally I don't start off with a question like this, but given what your expertise is now— I got to know, what is the most used app on your phone other than Squad? Probably Spotify. What is like your go-to hype song? Nuck if you buck. (laughs) Nuck if you buck. (laughs) First job you got paid for. I was a research chemist at 14 years old in the research labs at UNC Chapel Hill, working for an organic chemistry professor. Same. <laughs> Social media, pure evil or not the worst part of society? I mean, I think violence is like probably the worst part of society, but social media is pretty evil. <laughs> what is your weekly screen time? I don't know the answer to that, actually. Oh, impressive. You want me to look right now? Uh, yeah, I kind of want to know. Okay, let's see. It says daily average is seven hours. Okay. I have no clue if that's good or not. I don't know. A lot of that is email, though. That's better than mine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is better than mine. But I feel better that it is seven for you and not like one. Can you name all of the elements in the periodic table? No. Mm -mm. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, boron, boron, lithium, neon. I don't know. I can name like the first like. There's that song. There is a song, I I think, like. There is a song. I, for, I forget it. Was it like Schoolhouse Rock? It was like so, one of those. Yeah. You are a professional skydiver. Are you insane? Like, how did you <laughs> pick that as a hobby? Why? You know, somebody calls me insane at least once a week. But you guys are founders and you know that manning your mental health is a really important aspect of the founder journey. And skydiving, I actually got into because I just wanted to try it. And then when I did it for the first time, I was just such in a meditative space I had never, ever experienced. I felt more peace and more serenity than I had never, ever experienced in my life. I I swear on it. I swear on it. 
Oh my God. I am not a good flyer. I have thought though that skydiving would maybe cure my fear of flying. Let's do it. No. I'm trying I, to bring Tashanda too. I'm trying to bring everybody. Like, let's do it. Like, I wish you guys well. I'll take pictures from the ground. <laughs> we can go get a drink after. Okay. Before you like jump, do you say a prayer? Like what what is your thought? What's the thought in your head? Really, when you're skydiving, the thing that you're supposed to do when you jump is you're supposed to look out the door, like kind of hang your head out the door and spot down the landing oh area that you're about to land in. I'm like, okay, do I have an eye on landing area? Okay, cool. Everyone, we're jumping. All right. And I'm usually jumping with people. So we do a count. Right. And we go. So in my mind, that's the exact opposite yeah, I would of close what my I would eyes do. And I would pray. Yeah. And then I would say, somebody push me. <laughs> It'd be like, don't look down. <laughs> no, you got to you gotta make sure because you don't want to land over the wrong spot and have to land off. Yeah, I mean, I agree. <laughs> like, that's a really important thing, which is why I'm not going to do this. Okay, last question. Who is one person that you would love to have dinner with that you've never met? One person I would love to have dinner with that I've never met, probably Whoopi Goldberg. Ooh. Whoopi, she has had such a phenomenal career, but aside from that, like her energy just gives me like wise auntie. And I just feel like I would learn so much from her. I love that. I have a lot of questions for her. She's had a long career. She has. Okay, let's get into your career. So it seems like you've done a lot of different things, but there's been a theme, which is you've always been somewhat of a builder. From working in a chem lab at age 14 to traveling the world with J.P. Morgan to building your own app, what other thoughts do you see in your experience? And I'm positioning this because sometimes pivots seem really scary, but from talking to so many people about their careers, there always seems to be a through line on what someone is really good at Yep, that I think helps people when they're thinking about making their own career change. Yeah, and it's interesting you pointed out Builder because, you know, my dad is like this old school immigrant Caribbean engineer. His his philosophy in life was, you know, Isa, if you can't build it, you shouldn't be using it. He was always taking me to buy the parts of a computer. And I've been, I was building my computers from the age of seven. And I just loved building. Yeah, I was like, oh, let's create something from nothing, right? But then, you know, I started to figure out who I was in life, who I wanted to be in this world and what that meant to me. And the through line for me is always impact. You know, my dad always said to me, you growing up, he was like, Isa, you're such a blessed girl. And it's your job to share your blessings with as many people as you can on this planet. And one of the things that I realized when I started working, you know, I was a highly decorated chemist. I was the youngest published chemist in the world at 19. And then, you know, on Wall Street, doing really big, you know, billion plus dollar projects there. The one thing I realized was that I was taking my skills and building for impact, and, you know, the thing about social media and where we are, it's the U.S. Surgeon General declared it's an official public health threat. Loneliness is a huge epidemic and it's really harming our children. But the reality is that we could be extract a lot of joy from friendship, but we've lost a lot of that in friendship building muscle. And so impact again. So the through line for me, like I, you're right, I do love to build. And in my next life, like post squat, like five years, look out for the invite. I want to make wine. Like just for fun, yeah. Okay, well, we would love to I'll be go a taster. To your yeah, you party. should come through. It'll be in France, though. So, okay. Honestly, that's much better for me. Yeah, I feel like we're gonna end up drunk and skydiving. <laughs> uh, you might. 
I will just be drinking the wine on the ground and waving to you from above. So you were, you know, you were on this track to get a PhD and then decided not for me. Mm-hmm. Anytime, you know, I've talked to anybody in like the academic world or who pursued a medical degree, like you got to love school. You are putting in that time and clearly you are somebody who is like very dedicated to this field. So I'm curious, what gave you pause? Put us in that moment with you where you're like, I'm not doing this. I think for me, you know, my parents put me in educational science camps every summer since the summer after first grade. I was in like gifted programs at Duke when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. And so I was always oriented to science and I was really good at it. And I think because I'm a Black woman, you know, people are like, oh, she's a scientist and she's really good at it. Oh, you have to get a PhD. MIT was flying me out. Caltech was flying me out. I was like doing research with professors here, there, everywhere. I was getting trained by Nobel laureates. And so I think that with that, and keep in mind, I had skipped two grades. This is a very like long way to say you were like the Doogie Hauser of the <laughs> academic world. No, not even. <laughs> not even. <laughs> I was just kind of going where people told me I should go. But, you know, when I was at Cornell for my PhD in pharmacology, which is a fancy word for the biochemistry of drugs, I realized that I was living someone else's life, you know, because I, my, my cousin, she's, she's it's so funny. She's an OBGYN at Duke. And she told this story recently about how my mom took me to her office when I was 10 years old at Duke to shadow her or whatever. And my cousin asked me in front of her colleagues at 10. I said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said to her confidently, I said, I am going to be a CEO of a pharmaceutical company. And my, oh my gosh. <laughs> and my cousin was like, well, okay, you got it then. <laughs> <laughs> I was always interested in more of the commerce and the impact. And at the end of the day, you know, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, you always have to live a life that's true to you. And you will disappoint other people along the way. But as long as I'm true to me and I'm kind and I show up in the world in a good way, then I'm pleased with that. But on the science side, you know, when I was at Pfizer, when I was doing my PhD, anything that I touched in a lab would never touch a human for over a dozen years. And that's just a very long feedback cycle. And from a personality standpoint, I couldn't really live with that and feel happy. And it was very lonely and isolating. Some people do well with that. I personally wasn't someone who did. So... It's easy, you know, on the show when we talk to other successful women and they're about their careers to kind of talk about important pivots and changes and decisions they made. But in the moment, like that is really effing hard. And reading, you know, about you ahead of this, I read that you said you felt shame in, in getting off that track. I felt a lot of shame. So two things. This was the first time I had ever parted ways with like my parents plan for me. You know, my parents had a grand plan for me. And my mom still to this day, she's like, what are you doing in PhD? And I'm like, whoa, chill. And because I was living somebody else's life and not my own, because I wasn't being true to myself, I was extremely depressed in grad school. Extremely depressed. I would go to lab, run my experiments, go home and sleep. Did you know that you were depressed at the time? After a while, because I never slept that much. You know, depression shows up and manifests in different people different ways. And, you know, for me at that time in my life, it was like I was just so just tired and sleepy and and can bear. I was a zombie, you know, and I didn't like that. I didn't like being in that place and in that space. I also felt a lot of shame because 
let's make no mistake, Larry and Sergey can leave their PhD programs to start Google. And it's like, oh, they have better things to do. But when a Black girl leaves her PhD program, it's like, oh, she couldn't handle it, you know? And I didn't want to, like, my parents feel disappointed about that. I didn't, I was self-conscious about how people would view me as someone who actually voluntarily left my PhD program after my master's. And so I felt a lot of shame about it. And I still really don't talk about it. Like, I don't like walk around and be like, yo, my PhD dropout. But I'm also, I don't hide it either, you know, because I think that's my journey. That's my story. So in doing prep for this, I had read what you said about dropping out in in comparison to, you know, when male founders who have the same experience, it's like, oh, they were ready. And I found that so interesting because as much as we think about stats around women, as much as we interview women who have all different stories, I've never thought about it in that context. And even thinking about Mark Zuckerberg dropping out of school, like how those decisions are viewed and the idea of a pivot versus couldn't hack it. Right. Um, So I think it's so important to share that. And I really appreciate that. It kind of like finally clicked in my head how that's viewed so differently. So differently. And also keep in mind, like it feeds into things that we do next because men, you know, you guys already know the stats around this. Men apply for jobs with like meeting two criteria of the 10, whereas women need to meet like nine of the 10, right? And if you didn't check that degree box, right, the guy will still apply, but the girl won't. Mm -hmm. You end up going to get your MBA. You're at MIT. Which, by the way, when we talk about pivots, it's like, in my mind, I'm like, okay, you didn't get your PhD, but you're getting your MBA. At MIT. At MIT. And then you go through recruiting for consulting firms and banks. And what I read that you said to many of your recruiters is, oh, I am just a scientist. And that some recruiter finally said to you, don't say that. You're not just a scientist. And when I read that, I saw myself, I saw every woman I know, we all say like, oh, I'm just, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like we all have those moments where you kind of minimize the thing that you do. When you heard the recruiter say that back to you, what went through your head? When the recruiter said back to me, she was like, let me just tell you, never say that to anybody ever again. I was like, damn. Like, I was like, whoa, she called (laughs) me out. And then I had to think about like, why Mm -hmm. is she saying this? Right. And the fact that I just felt deep insecurity when I went to business school and the vast majority of my classmates did like their two or three years at Goldman and two or three years at McKinsey or whatever. And I was like, I've never taken accounting, but I can talk to you about PCM. I can talk to you about, you know, Tetra as a psychododecane, you know? And so I think I was just a little bit of an outcast and that outcast it ended up feeding and manifesting as insecurity when my outcast qualities are my strengths. They're my differentiators. We talk a lot about the state of women at the skin, and we talk, which is, you know, headline is it's not great today. And we're saying that coming out of a pandemic, we're saying that when, you know, a record amount of people have filed for unemployment over the last few years, for a variety of reasons, this generation has had forced or unforced a lot of pivots on their resume. For those that are listening, how do you advise them to talk about that journey to potential employers? The piece of advice that I was given was learn to talk about your skill sets in a way that the audience you're talking to will understand. So if I'm a chemist and I'm talking to other chemists or other like biochemists, I can talk to you about the assays that I can run. I can talk to you about my ability to build compounds from nothing, right? But 
if I'm talking to Jamie Dimon, I would take those same skills and I would say, you know, Jamie, as a chemist, I'm highly analytical, highly data-oriented. I have a lot of training in data scientists as well. And I'm a really strong problem solver and a very strong communicator. Because make no mistake, your science doesn't matter if you can't communicate it. And so those are all qualities that somebody like J.P. Morgan would love, right? Or if I was talking to, let's say I wanted to go to InStyle Magazine, I would say that was creative. And so I think that the biggest thing is that we actually all have a common language. We just have to learn to employ it. I want to talk about the Wall Street version of you. Uh You had a quick rise, traveled the world. You're doing super well in all the ways that I think we've been taught to kind of measure doing well. What did that feel like? When I say all happened so fast, like the rise happened really fast, right? It felt like I was actually drinking from a fire hose and being a sponge. So it's really interesting. One of my closest mentors to this day is this lady named Carla Harris, who was the vice chairman of Morgan Stanley, one of the oldest Black MDs or, you know, eminent bankers on Wall Street. And she said to me, like 10 years ago when I started, like, really having these conversations with her, she said, you know, Isa, two things. You know, one is that your biggest mistake and pitfall sometimes in these environments is that you haven't taken the time to understand your environment before you make your move. And you really need to understand the players. And, you know, this is chess, not checkers. She said, the second thing is that anytime I actually give you feedback, you actually take it and implement it. And so I think that she was like, that's actually a big differentiator because a lot of people don't. And then you you loop back and let me know what the feedback got you. It was really exciting in in the sense that I learned so much but I was also so focused on just delivering and I was so focused on learning and absorbing. And, you know, one of the things my parents always taught me is that, you know, Isa, yes, you can get, you know, straight A's or you can get a really great SAT score and all these accolades, but you never stop learning. And I think that's so fundamental to like who I am. When did you realize that being on this kind of achievement path wasn't necessarily where you wanted to be? Yeah, I think I realized that when life happened, My time at J.P. Morgan, and this is a reflection of where I was in my life, my whole plan. I went to J.P. Morgan and I told the senior leaders, I said, listen, I'm going to make MD by 32. I'm going to run a big business by 36. I'm going to announce my run for governor or U.S. senator by 40 and you're going to support it and introduce me to all your rich friends because why not? This is how it's going to go. And (laughs) they were like, okay, cool. (laughs) Like, this is also funny. Like, but, you know, my parents... Grew up in a very close-knit family. My parents sponsored a bus trip because of visit Hampton University every year. It was like the thing that they loved to do together. And this particular year, the bus ran off a straight road, flipped over and ejected both my parents out the front window. My dad didn't survive that. And when I tell you that I literally was kind of on this wave up and just hit rock bottom, I really hit rock bottom. You know, my dad was like my bestie. That was my homie. I called my dad for everything. It was just a huge, huge just disturbance, tragedy, trauma, abrupt, and just sudden shift in my life. And it made me realize a few things. One is that life is short. And I think my dad, he used to always say this, and I've heard this several times, but I never thought it applied to me. You know, I just never really absorbed it that close to me before. Going back to my dad saying, he was like, you know, Isaac, you're a blessing. You know, I think as a child, he saw my gifts and was just trying to nurture those. And, you know, he said, your job to share that with as many people as you can. And that clicked with me at J.P. Morgan when my dad passed away. But also one of the things that was really interesting during my time at J.P. Morgan was social media was starting to become a whole personal brand thing. Like 
10 years prior, what was a personal brand? What does that even mean? <laughs> so when I was a highly decorated chemist and I was getting this accolade and that accolade and this accolade, you know, I just kind of lived in that moment. But when I was switched over to Wall Street and I was getting 40 under 40 or top 100 this or top 30 that, I would put it on social media. And I started getting all this validation from people that I had never left in the same room with. And I kind of got a little bit addicted to that in a way that made me kind of a little bit neglect my real life and the strength of my real relationships in lieu of this positioning life. And when my dad passed away, especially in the way that he did, it made me come back and realize that I had really abandoned some of the, those strong relationships that had brought me joy for so long. How long after that, your, your dad passing, did you decide to make this leap? I would say it had to be about two years, in part because it took me a long time to process. The reason why I ask that is I don't think grief gets talked about enough as being such a catalyst for huge events in your life. And one of the things that I find really interesting is when you go through grief, any kind of like expert says, don't change things for a year because you're going to be in this moment of like you're all over the place. And it was two years for you, Mm -hmm. but it was that 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 kind of made you start to really rethink your life and then do something about it. Well, there's so many parts of grief, right? There's first denial, then there's acceptance. I mean, there's so many different layers of it and it takes a while to process. There's nothing you can do to catalyze that process. You literally have to just be in it and take it as it goes. And I think that the process of, first of all, accepting that my dad had passed away, the other part of that was that my mom was in that same accident and barely survived. So I had to nurse her back to health while I was working and trying to make a living and pay off my student loans, right? So my grief is delayed because my mom is kind of in this PTSD situation and not really doing well every day. And I have to take care of her. And then it's like, okay, got my mom straight. Now let me process my grief. And then it was, okay, how does this impact what I want to do with my life? Or how do I feel? Let me be honest with how I feel. And so it's just, it's a, it's a long, long process. And I think, I don't think that anybody should rush it. I will also say though that people grieve differently. Some people would have moved on faster than I did. I just wasn't quite ready and I was still processing. What you're describing is this kind of hitting of a rock bottom where you had this moment of like, what is purpose? What is my legacy? What is my blessing that your dad talked about? How did that bring you to create Squad? It brought me to create Squad because when I hit rock bottom, it was completely exacerbated by the fact that I didn't actually know how to lean on people. I didn't know how to ask for support. I didn't know how to lean on my friends. And I didn't know how to kind of stay in those cultivated relationships that I had like almost not abandoned, but put on the back burner for a little bit. And that was just a horrible place to be. And another part of grief is learning how to talk about it. Because when I tell you, I live in New York City, I can walk around the city. If I see a charter bus, my dad was thrown out the window of a charter bus, sometimes my heart still drops. Sometimes I have to turn away. Or my dad, we were both pianists. He always played Moon River. I don't know if you know that. Moon Mm -hmm. River. Yeah. Anytime for like five years, anytime I heard that song, like anywhere in New York, I would just start bawling, you know? And so when I learned how to talk about what I was experiencing, I realized that there were so many other people who were experiencing loneliness because they were conflating consumption with connection online. 
and the online environment was changing so dramatically that they weren't really processing their habits that they were building. They were just really focused on, oh, let me keep up with the keep up. And so I think for me, Squad was all about being able to give people an outlet or kind of alternate or just reestablishing the habit of friendship. For those that aren't familiar with Squad, can you give like the one-line skim on it? Yeah. Squad is the easiest and most fun way for you to talk to your close friends every day away from social media. I think the thing that I've been loving about this conversation and I'm prepping for it is that maybe you didn't realize it at the time, but when like you look back at all the decisions that you have made, like you've always beat to your own drum. I think, you know, one of the other things that I've really appreciated is that you've talked about choosing to be child-free. We talk a lot about kind of the myth of, you know, work-life balance, especially when you, you have a child. We don't talk enough about choosing to be child-free. And, you know, at the skim, one of the things that we have really tried to highlight is to talk about how do companies support the decisions that their employees make, whatever that looks like for them. I'm really curious what your experience has been like having these high-profile roles and then saying, this is also my path. Are you asking, like, what has people's response been when I wanted to? Yeah. My choice to be child-free was a journey for me. So I actually froze my eggs about four years ago because I was, like, on the fence about it. And before that, it was, you know, I'm one of six and I'm Caribbean. So it was, like, not even a question of, are you having kids? It was, like, do you want four? Do you want five? Like, you know? And um, <laughs> and so I think that I initially carried shame around it, if I'm being honest with you, in part because I sense that people would look at me and be like, oh, that's so sad. Why would she want to be deprived of, like, you know, the wonderful life of motherhood? And then over time, I think that two things happen. I think one, if you look at the macro conversation, that shifted a bit too. And so I think that that has made it easier. But I've also, you know, one of the things that has been part of my journey is that even though I may not be the most comfortable, I'll still stick it and I'll, I'll see it through, right? And so I was less comfortable talking about it like three years ago. Now I'm more comfortable talking about it because it's my life, it's my journey, and I'm comfortable in my decision. And so I think that the negativity that I experienced was more so just carrying shame around it and people being like, oh, is it because she's like not married by 32? And I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I just want a life that is a little bit more free than what a child would allow me to have. But one of the things that I think people really gets under their skin and I understand it is kind of what you just hit on, which is you felt this like weird pity judgment from people. And so for those that are listening, that whether they're employers or colleagues, what is your actual advice to them around learning or, or assuming that maybe somebody is, you know, choosing or not choosing to be child-free? I think that, you know, it's really important to understand that we don't actually have a say in what other people do with their lives. I even caught myself two weekends ago. I was at my mentor's house in Greenwich, Connecticut, and I was sitting on her back porch. We were drinking wine with her friends. They were like, give us the update. How's the dating life? Da, da, da. And then I actually went into, you know, I don't feel pressure to be married right now because I don't want children. And I went on and I went on. And they said to me, they were like, you know, you don't have to be defensive. Like, you don't have to explain it. And I, I, I caught myself. I was like, oh, I guess I 
am explaining it. Why was I doing that? You know? And I think that it's because so many people give me opinions. I still stand strong in my opinion today, but, you know, people have actually said to me, that's not fair because, you know, you owe the contribution to the world to procreate, (laughs) you know? People have said to me that, you know, there's no one that's going to take care of me when I'm 80 years old. There are people that have said all these things. And I think that the best thing that you can do for your employees, the best thing for you, that you can do for your coworkers is to just allow them to show up as themselves. And that is like the one compliment that I'm so proud of, like as a manager and as a leader of a company, a growing company, is that people on my team all walk to like, they say, Isa, you just, you just let me show up as myself. Isa, I loved hearing uh, about your journey. We have two quick questions to wrap up with. The first is a listener question from Kelsey who wants to know, how can I create better boundaries with social media? I would say, Kelsey, you can't, so get squat. (laughs) I would say, Kelsey, you can't, but get squat. You should totally get squat. But there are a few things that you should do. Brene Brown is my favorite psychologist. She's the second person I would have dinner with, by the way, after whooping. Can you invite her to Paris with us? Yes, I'll absolutely invite Brene. Brene, girl, let's go drink some wine in France. But, you know, she talks about this era of scarcity that we live in. When the first thing we think about when we wake up in the morning, I didn't get enough sleep. Last thing we think about when our head hits the pillow at night, I didn't get enough done in a day. And when are the times where we're kind of doom scrolling social media? Top of the day, end of the day, laying in bed, going to sleep, right? And so I think that breaking off from social media an hour into your day and an hour before you go to bed, just allowing yourself to be grounded in you, really important. I also turn off like like notifications. You have kind of an instant dopamine hit, but it goes right back down. You know, whereas like friendship and sustained friendship, that's that dopamine hit, but it's sustained, right? Too many people have turned their validation of them as people into how many likes that they're getting. And that's why we've turned into kind of excessive validation seekers. I turned off my like notifications and I turned off all notifications because, I mean, why do I need those? Those are kind of the big things. But also, you know, you can just search Squatch Social on the App Store Play Store and, and download that and hang out with your friends there. Final question. Who's someone else we should have on the show? I would say Emily Tish Sussman. Who is oh. a dear friend. And I love that idea. Emily, we're coming for you. And also want to give a shout out to Tashonda Brown-Duckett, who introduced us to you and was also on this show. So we love to pay it forward. So thank you. Yay, T. I said, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. 